Hello and welcome. We are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nate Huss and I am stoked you are tuning in to our teaching of the week. If you are new, so glad you found us. If you haven't already and would like to learn a little bit more about us, jump over to restorationaz.org. All right, let's grab our Bibles and dive into this week's teaching. Good morning. If you're new with us, my name is Landon, and I get to be one of the team members, and I have a slightly deeper voice than normal for some reason today. I don't know why, but we'll just let you know that that's happening, because a few people have commented on it. John chapter 8. Oh, my brother-in-law just texted me. He said puberty is the reason that my voice is getting deeper. (laughs) I have a lot of kids, so that ship sailed. Mike, why don't you stand up for a second? No, real quick, just stand up. Seriously. No, I'm dead serious. You're going to stand up real fast. All right, give him a round of applause. Here's the thing. I'm actually not doing that to be mean. I was contemplating talking about you uh, before I walked up here, but you just sealed the deal. When I talk about Mike, most often I'm making fun of him. And that's kind of my love language. Like, if I'm not making fun of you a lot, I don't know you very well, is how you can take that. What I was going to say about you, Mike, is that, man, I am blessed beyond belief that you are the man my sister chose to marry, that my nieces and nephew get to have as a father, that I get to be a neighbor with. You're you're killing it in every way. You are such a, a man of God, and I'm blessed. Our church is blessed that you're sitting right there and helping lead and uh, exemplify what it means to, to follow Jesus as a, a husband, a father, a neighbor. He also helped me. I, I was attempting to fix my car yesterday for like 18 hours, it felt like. It didn't work very well, but he was helping me every time I messed it up. And I didn't punch a hole through the window, so that felt like a win by the end of it. All right, now we're going to talk about the Bible. John chapter 8. One of the things I've been contemplating lately is that every single relationship that exists goes through cycles. So if you came into this room with somebody, whatever the the type of relationship is, could be with a a parent, a family member, a spouse, a friend, it goes through cycles. And that can be the getting to know each other cycle, could be the I'm kind of bored with you cycle, could be the you really annoy me cycle, it could be the hey, we're figuring this out again cycle, or it could be the like, oh, I don't know if I really want to keep doing this cycle. There's all kinds of cycles in relationships that never stops. And it's no different with Jesus. I think sometimes we think there aren't cycles in our relationship with Jesus or like it should always be at this top point of this feels really good and we're excited about it and and we're communicating well and it just doesn't work that way with Jesus either. And so it's actually healthy to step back and go, where am I at in these cycles of my relationship with Jesus? And not necessarily so that you can change it, but just embrace it. Go, all right, part of faithfulness, whether it's in a a marriage, a parent-child relationship, any type of relationship is going, we're going to journey together through the different stages and seasons and cycles and be faithful through them. And so it's actually good to just name where you're at and embrace it and let Jesus lead through it. Through this series of kind of studying what does it actually mean to be loved by Jesus and what does it look like to actually love like Jesus I'm enjoying just Jesus working in my own life and getting to to know him in in different and further and deeper ways. And so my hope and prayer for us 
through the series as we continue it, and especially today in John 8, is that you'll be just surprised by the brilliance of Jesus. He's, he's truly awesome. He's truly inspiring. And so I think we'll, we'll see that in, in what he does. Let's go ahead and read John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. At dawn, Jesus went to the temple complex again, and all the people who were coming to him, oh, excuse me, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. and the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. If you look at verse two, the kind of context and setting of this account with Jesus and these leaders and the crowd and this woman, it's actually not incredibly different than what we have today. There's a crowd of people gathered in a space to worship. There's teaching going on as well. So imagine for a moment that the setting is similar. And there's this, this woman then in, in verses three and four who's brought forth the scribes and the, the Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery. They make her stand in the center. Teacher, they say to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. Imagine for a second what that moment and day and event would have been like pretty awkward, pretty suspenseful. All of the weight of that moment is on her shoulders. She's the sole target of attention in all of the wrong ways. The reality kind of is for the people that have walked into this room this morning, it's probably similar secrets that have been hidden. Sins that don't want to be shared things you don't want anyone to know. Maybe no one does know. But imagine for a second that somehow we just knew. We have a security team always at our, each of our gatherings, and somehow they knew, and the men that are on the security team this morning came right up to you and pulled you by the arm and dragged you right up here onto the stage, and everybody's staring at you as you are forced to walk up the steps, and as you are forced to walk up those steps, everybody knows, hey, they have something Real significant, they're hiding, but it's all going to be told shortly. That would be pretty uncomfortable. Imagine that woman on that day. Notice a couple things as well. Number one, the man's not with her. They don't care about him in this moment. She's alone facing this, all eyes on her. Can you imagine, too, being, being that woman? As she's dragged there and the dust kind of settles and all eyes are on her, the things she must have been feeling and pondering because at that moment, her life as she has known it is over. It might be physically over, like 
Stoning was a possibility. She might die right there. But even if she didn't die right there, her life as she knew it was done. It was dead. It was gone. The man's not responsible. She's there by her, herself. Here's Jesus teaching the scripture. She's in the place of worship, probably feeling rejected by God. Notice also it says she was caught in the act of committing adultery. So who knows exactly what that means? Does she have time to put some clothes on? Maybe they wrapped a sheet around her. Who knows what's going on? But she's drugged in front of everybody, paraded, used. Probably, though, the Pharisees didn't even care that she committed adultery. The only reason they bring her up there in front of everybody at that moment and in that time was to attempt to trap Jesus. We continue reading. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. Again, the sole purpose of these men bringing this woman up on that stage in that moment actually had nothing to do with her. These men were power hungry. They were used to being in places and positions of wielding power, and Jesus was taking that power from them. Power is a finite resource. There's only so much to go around, and as Jesus gained that power, they lost that power, and so they were seeking to trap him to gain power again. They, they attempted to and thought they'd put him in this kind of lose-lose situation where he's trapped. That's why he's there. And really, maybe lose-lose-lose is a more accurate uh, representation of what they were presenting. There were three options here for Jesus, all of them losses. I don't think the religious leaders cared which option Jesus chose. They just wanted him to lose, to lose power so they could gain it again. Here's the, the three options. For Jesus to condemn her would change and harm the relationship. He'd worked really hard to build of compassion, of love with the, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, with this whole multitude of people that needed the love of God. And if he rejected her in this moment, all of that that had been built would probably be lost. It's option one. Option two, for Jesus to condemn her to death would actually be to contradict the Roman Empire who was in charge at that moment because they did not allow the Jews to carry out the death penalty. So we could cross these people he was compassionately loving and leading or he could cross the Roman Empire, which later would have significant consequences. Or the third option, for Jesus to say the woman should not be stoned, would be to contradict the law of Moses, and he would probably lose the voice he had as an excellent teacher because he was rejecting what the scriptures had said. Again, I don't think the Pharisees and Sadducees cared which option he took, just that the three options that were actually options, seemingly, in that moment would all lead to Jesus losing. And it appeared that way. Come back to that moment, that stage, and think about the sound. Probably quiet, just like now. You hear a few people breathing and sniffling until Jesus stoops down and he sticks his finger into the dirt of some sort and he starts to write something. And everybody is just listening to just that. You can hear it uh, above the voice uh, or the sound of breathing. 
This, this scratching sound in the dirt of Jesus writing something and everybody's looking, wondering, what is it that he's writing? What is he going to do? They know what the Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to do. This poor woman sitting there just as this object in this moment. And there's this pressure, this buildup, this wondering of what is going to happen. And then Jesus does something spectacular. She has a habit of doing. He offers this perfect blend of his character. This is something we have to talk about often. Who God is, is this perfect combination, perfect recipe of generosity, grace, and mercy, of forgiveness, yet justice, of power and love and faithfulness. And in one moment he says, here's how I am all those things at once in ways none of you can ever be. And they continue to persist, we read. I'm questioning him. He stands up and he says to them, I imagine too, we don't know how Jesus said this, but I kind of imagine it. Just, um, this is just me thinking. I bet he spoke quietly. I bet he spoke softly. Because there's actually more power sometimes in that. He didn't have to raise his voice. He didn't have to work hard to make a point. I bet he grabbed the ear of every person surrounding him in that moment so that they had to listen so carefully as he said, the one without sin among you should be the first one to throw a stone at her. And then more silence. And the woman sat still wondering what was going to happen. And Jesus stood there in stillness and silence in the crowd and stillness and silence. And then those leaders seeking to trap Jesus, thinking, oh, we got one on Jesus this time. I bet they came confidently with their whole crew. And then there's just silence. And the younger ones looked at the older ones. What do we do? Until the oldest of those religious leaders had to embrace the shame of being outwitted again, and the oldest went first. And then one by one, from oldest to youngest, they accepted their defeat, though they thought they had Jesus in a lose-lose-lose situation, and they left. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger when they persisted in questioning him. He stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. Two things we need to know about what it means to be loved by Jesus. Number one, to be loved by Jesus is to be loved by the one who has never not been the smartest one in the room. Like, we'll take communion later. And then as you leave and you go into the everyday stuff of life, whatever hats you wear in life, that means you have the person who is always the smartest in the room, the most powerful, the most intelligent, the most creative, the most compassionate, the most loving, the most understanding will always be with you. That's pretty good to know. Second thing we, we see in this is that to be loved by Jesus means he will stand by you and no one else will. They're all gone at some point, and it's just her and Jesus. And we can know, even if everybody else fails us, even if we fail ourselves, at the end you'll be standing there 
Maybe you're falling over. Jesus will pick you up and he'll be there standing with you. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you. She said, Jesus, go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. We, we have to understand something about Jesus. Is, he's doing multiple things here. Jesus does not minimize sin. He's incredibly compassionate. He's brilliant intellectually, but he doesn't minimize sin. He doesn't pretend it doesn't exist. He doesn't say, hey, it's okay. No, don't worry about it. They're gone. Go do you. Do what you want, whatever feels good. Like whatever's out there, go explore, figure it out, have fun, no worries. He doesn't do that. He says, no one's here. And go, quit sinning in this way. He says both things. He doesn't give in to the pressure of cultural leaders, but he's not caught up in this ridiculous sentiment and idea that love is just nice. He loves her too much to lie to her. So if you're expecting to get something from Jesus where he's just going to let you off the hook, where he's never going to tell you hard things, where he's going to say, yeah, just enjoy that, he won't. That's not who Jesus is. There's three really important things that happen in this moment. Jesus does not condemn her. Jesus also does not condone or allow her sin. And number three, Jesus calls her to something deeply better and good. And that's true for every one of us as well. To be loved by Jesus means that Jesus does not and will not condemn you. Jesus also does not condone your sin. And through it all, Jesus calls you to something deeply better and good. I want to break down each of those three things because each of the three separately and together are really, really important. First one is Jesus does not condemn you. Condemned means this. It's officially declared unfit for use. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever contemplated your relationship with God and you think about how God makes you feel or how you act or the things you pray or don't pray or kind of do you run away from God or run to God? Have you ever felt like God has declared you unfit for use because of your history, your present moment, whatever's going on? Or if we want to just think more plainly theologically, all men are guilty, so we're sentenced to death until Jesus took our place on the cross and provided victory over sin. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus, you are not condemned. But just because you are not condemned does not mean that Satan will not come along and tell you you are condemned. It doesn't mean that Satan will not come along and do everything he can to cause you to feel Condemned, Because whether you believe it or just feel it, it will influence you. So when you feel condemned, or you believe he has or will condemn you, you just have to preach the words of Jesus to yourself. Neither do I. That's what Jesus says to you. No matter what it is, no matter what it's been, no matter what it will be, no one has true authority to condemn you, and Jesus says, neither do I. Let's do something uncomfortable, because if we don't do uncomfortable things, I don't think we're making any progress. So we're going to do a little exercise here, and I'm going to shut up for 30 seconds or so, and I want you to think about sin in your life. It probably won't be hard. 
Big sin, small sin, whatever, size of sin, I don't care. Think about it. You know what it is. Like, bring it painfully to your mind. Go ahead. Whatever you thought about, hopefully you have the self-awareness and honesty to bring some, some things to mind. Those things are very true about you. Those things are an actual part of your history and your story. You did them. Or allowed them to be done, whatever it is. That is true. But it's not the truest thing about you. Like with the reality of those things in your life, hear this, Jesus does not and Jesus will not condemn you. That's what happened. This woman is brought before and Jesus is proclaiming something because of his love and his sacrifice for us. Whatever sin has or will happen in your life, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So you are not condemned. Now, let me tell you something, Jesus, or not Jesus, Satan is going to come and he will try to condemn you, but he will make sure that it's done in such a crafty way because he's good at what he does so that you think it's Jesus condemning you. And if he can't get you to believe it, maybe more powerfully, he'll just get you to feel it because those feelings still influence us. A couple things happen if we believe or feel, either one, one or the other, or both, that we're condemned. A is, you'll probably in this emotional reaction, reactivity, you'll prematurely reject God. You're gonna think that he's gonna reject you at some point, so you just kind of beat him to it. You're like, oh, I'm just gonna get this out of the way and get it done with, and you're gonna run a different direction. Reject God, reject the church, re reject faith. Or, you'll embrace this endless rat race of spirituality and good works and you'll try to earn God's love and it'll never work. You'll just have to keep trying and trying and trying. Satan wants you to feel condemned. Jesus will not condemn you. Second part of this equation, Jesus does not condone your sin. Our, our culture loves parts of what Jesus said here. Go be yourself, do whatever you wanna do, be the best you, only you know. No condemnation. Our culture does not love the Jesus does not condone your sin part. To kind of really grasp this, I think we have to understand what, what sin is. And I often, when I'm, I'm talking about sin or attempting to explain it, talk first about what it's not, depending on if you grew up in church or not or what books you've read or people have taught. I think sometimes a natural idea of sin is that this book, the scriptures, the Bible, is this long rule book. And, and sin is basically getting it wrong. You didn't do the right things and you did do the wrong things. And someday, this is always my joke, you're gonna like fly away to heaven or like near heaven, the gates, whatever it looks like. And like, say, here I am. And be like, name? You'd be like, blah, blah, blah. All right, let's put your little spiritual scantron test through the machine. Be like, ah, you did a lot of good, but you did just a little bit more bad. So you go that way. Yeah, and I think we think of sin that way. And it's not that way. Like it's this stagnant, 
mathematical equation and sin is not. Sin is like this living organism that distorts what is good and causes decay. It's like a a disease or maybe rust. It's something that takes a a good and healthy and beautiful and life-giving structure and slowly or quickly depletes it till there's nothing left. Disintegrates. Sin probably will feel good at first because it's a distortion. It takes something good always. Sin never starts with something bad. It takes something good. It'll captivate you with it, but then it'll take it a different direction that's harmful. Another way to to think about the distortion that sin is is that it's like a parasite. Parasite needs a host. It needs something that's good to suck the life out of. That's how sin works. Takes what's good in the host and depletes it. A few examples. One of the easiest to talk about is, is sex. Sin turns sex, something meant for intimacy and pleasure and connection and unity and child produce, production. That's a great word. That's what, that's what sex does. Child production. Childbearing, making something. Sex turns the, or sin turns the good of sex into instead abuse neglect, objectification, even profits, deep levels of harm, something good God intended and it just depletes it of everything that is good and turns it into something awful. Sin turns good things meant to be consumed as gifts from God to be filled with gratitude with into endless pits of despair and dependency. Sin turns relationships of all kinds, things that are meant to enhance the best out of another person, whether that's a marriage, a parent-child relationship, even friendships. We should bring the best out of each other. And sin just tears people apart. It's for that reason that for Jesus to condone your sin would be for Jesus to choose to not love you. And he just won't make that choice. So he's not going to condone your sin because he knows where it leads. Is there something in your life that you don't want anybody to know about? Or is there something in your life that maybe people know about and you just can't get through it? Is there something in your life that you don't want to share with Jesus? It could be any distortion of what is good. Anything less than being human the way we were made to be. The fact that Jesus doesn't condone or allow our sin to continue means that there's actually a target. There's an absolute truth. There's a right way to be a father. There's a wrong way to be a father. There's a right way to be a a husband. There's a right way to be a mother. It means there's a wrong way or a wife to do those things as well. Or a grandparent or an educator or a business or property owner or a tenant or an employee. There's a right way to do it. We'll call it being human the way we were made and saved to be. So are there any areas in your relationships and how you steward your stuff and your sexuality and your relationships your thoughts, your desires, that you're settling for a distortion, letting this parasite called sin to suck the life of what is good out of that area of life and leave you eventually really depleted and broken. So, Jesus already knows. He does not condemn you, but he loves you too much to condone your sin. And so he calls you to something better, to something good. Jesus does not condemn you. Jesus does not condone your sin. So if you're in the midst of sin, 
preach what he said. Go and don't do this anymore. I love you too much to let you stay there. And Jesus calls us to be human the way we were made to be. Whatever you do, whoever you do it with, whatever stuff you have around you while you do it, to practice generosity, to practice faithfulness, to practice justice, to practice mercy, to practice forgiveness, to practice faithfulness. This perfect recipe and ingredients of character that God offers to us always. Unfortunately, I wish I could tell you if you just got like one of those three things taken in, you understood it, it'd be good, but it doesn't work that way. This isn't like a a pass or fail kind of thing. Like, hey, get two of the three and you'll be okay. If you don't get all three of these things, both in belief and feeling, and that matters because they're different, it will devastate your life. Not just your spirituality and your relationship with God. It'll devastate your other relationships. It'll devastate how you handle your resources. It'll devastate eventually, just like a parasite does, everything from the inside out. So I kind of want to break down the combinations of what happens if you get two of the three, but you leave one out. And I'll do it one by one. Here's the, the first one. This part might be slightly complex, so bear with me, but dive in. Hopefully it'll be worth it. If not, sorry. If you understand that your sin is not condoned and you see the vision for good that Jesus has for you, but you believe or feel you are condemned by him, you are going to feel shame and distance. This is the Eve in the garden thing. You go, oh, all right, Jesus has good for me. My sin is not condoned. He doesn't want me to do that. But I feel or believe I'm condemned. What you're going to do is create separation and cause distance in the relationship between you and God. Likely choice is that. You will likely choose to reject God as a defense mechanism, even though he is not rejecting you. But Satan's going to work really powerfully to get you to reject God first. Or option B, you will likely choose to enslave yourself to good works in an attempt to appease him and earn his love, which will never work because Jesus doesn't work that way. The distorted belief or, or feeling founding this is that Jesus' love for you is outweighed by your past sin. It's like, that's going to be some of you in this room. Not all of you, but some of you, that's how Satan will seek to win, to present you with a lose-lose situation. If you find yourself feeling like your sin outweighs Jesus' love for you, maybe you're getting two of these three right, but you're missing that one, and all Satan needs is for you to miss one. And his powerful, whispering lies will work. Second combination option. If you understand that you are not condemned and you see the vision for good that Jesus has for you, but you believe or feel that Jesus condones, allows your sin, then what you're going to experience is exhaustion and confusion. Here's why the the likely choice it will lead to is you're going to try to marry two different things that cannot be married. Not only are they not compatible, they're competing things. Jesus' love and trust, his declaration of what is good versus sin's declaration of what is good. And what's going to happen is is if you think Jesus condones your sin, you're going to kind of flip and flop. You're going to go back and forth. You're going to go like, "Ah, I trust Jesus right now. And then a couple days later, depending on a a different sphere of life, you're going to go like, oh, no, sin presents. You'll never say it that way, but here's an alternative. I'm going to go explore that. And then you're going to go, oh, that doesn't work either. And you're going to go back to Jesus and go, I think Jesus is trustworthy in these areas. 
But I think the world is trustworthy in these areas. And this mix and match kind of choose your own scenario is just going to leave you spinning and exhausted and confused because you're trying to marry two worlds that cannot be married. You're going to live into both terribly instead of either one well. The distorted belief or feeling there is that sin isn't actually that big of a deal or Jesus doesn't care that much anyway. So if you find yourself having thoughts, voices like that, maybe you're believing two of the things correctly, but you're missing one and you gotta have all three or Satan will wedge his way in there and it will, it will wreak havoc. Third combination option of getting two of the three right but one wrong is this. If you believe you are not condemned by Jesus and you understand that Jesus does not condone your sin, but you don't see the vision for good he has for you, then you'll probably just be miserable. And I know a lot of people that that's the reality. You won't give up on church and faith and Jesus probably because you're too afraid of hell and you'd rather have heaven you're just going to be miserable the, the whole time. The, the likely choice then is that you'll choose Jesus, but you'll kind of be secretly resentful of him because in your mind, he's responsible for creating this holy hell we'll call legalism, where he only cares about right and wrong, but the right way is dreadful and lifeless, but at least it's not hell, the real hell. That's the reality for a lot of people. It's a fire and brimstone sermon with no vision that we're not just saved from something. We're saved to a life that is actually good. He's the creator of all good things. That's why I said we got to throw great parties because if we don't exemplify that the way of Jesus is actually good and enjoyable and the best thing for relationships, the best thing for how to handle your finances, it's just good, then we're missing it. Jesus didn't just die, he rose. We're not just saved from something, we're saved for something. The distorted belief or feeling founding this option where you get two right and one wrong is you're embracing the way of Jesus, but doing so is just embracing the better of two bad options. And everyone in this room is probably going to fall into one of those three categories. Maybe at different seasons of life or based on what's going on in your world, maybe you'll move into different sets, combinations of these three. But we gotta do work. You gotta contemplate. Maybe you need to meet with somebody that knows you. Ask questions to find out, am I grasping these three? Am I feeling these three things correctly? Because Jesus has not and will not condemn you if you're following him. Jesus has not and will not condone your sin. He loves you too much to do so. And Jesus always has a beautiful good plan in all areas of life that he calls you to thanks so much for tuning in to our teaching of the week we are so grateful to partner with you in sharing the love of jesus in a world that really deeply longs for it and whether you're new here seeking more information looking for a church community or considering financial partnership go ahead and visit restorationaz.org for more details okay continue making a difference together. So how do we do that? By remembering Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.